This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. We're in the midst of uh, Passover, the remembrance of suffering of the Jewish people in Egypt, of their enslavement, and their God-given freedom. Today's Easter Sunday. Everything happened. Life became death. Death became life. There was suffering. In the name of suffering, there was the resurrection. Oh, and by the way, happy birthday. It's the Buddha's birthday. I think he's maybe around 2,600 years old. Still looking sharp, old man. (laughs) Yesterday we had a retreat uh, by Buddhist teacher Sabine Selassie on what gets left out, the unexplored wounds, the cultural bypassing, the suffering. And it was a powerful retreat in the particulars of what gets left out. And it just touched the surface of what gets left out within a community. Um, uh, But because of its specificity, uh, uh, it dug in deep. So I want to talk about what we usually leave out. So this is um, from the prophet, Kahali Gibran, on joy and sorrow. Then a woman asked, Speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine, the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit, the very wood that was hollowed out with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart, and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again into your heart, and you shall see that truth, that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow. And others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come. And when one sits alone with you at your, at your board, remember that the other is asleep on your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh their gold and their silver, Needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. No single English word 
adequately captures the full depth, the range, and the subtlety of the crucial polyterm dukkha. There are many translations for the words that have been used in English, stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. I often use the image of a wheel that turns, but is out of kilter. So yes, it turns, but it bumps with every turn, which is one way we can relate to our life. The Buddha said, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha, association with the unbeloved is dukkha, separation from the loved is dukkha, not getting what is wanted is dukkha, getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, the five clinging aggregates the parts that make us up, our being, our dukkha. That seems fairly comprehensive. For most of my, uh, at least earlier in my Zen career, I was told as Buddhists we don't pray. There is, after all, nothing outside ourselves. That's what we're practicing to see for ourselves. So who would we pray to? There is, after all, nothing lacking. So what could we possibly need to fill us up? That's true enough, but it's only one side. The other side is, I hurt, I hurt, and my words don't reach it. Have you uh, ever been in sorrow, real sorrow? Sorrow so big, it seems like an impenetrable mountain that looms before you, tall as the sky, so black with no possibilities. Sorrow that seems to deny light itself. You know, the kind that you know you won't commit suicide, but you think about it just to not face your pain. Have you ever been there? I have. Perhaps you have. I think many of us have. If you have not, I think I feel a bit sorry for you, for living your life inside a thick paper bag that you may think protects you from the world that you're embedded in. But there's no protection. Sorrow, trouble, lamentation has two sides. Despair can bring us to our edge of our separate sense of self, perhaps kicking and screaming, perhaps not out of our choice. I think usually not. We didn't choose to have this sorrow, whatever this sorrow is, usually. Well, if we did, it was kind of without conscious thought. But it can bring us to a place, to places that we could never go on our own, We're just too safe, too uncurious, too afraid, too disrespectful of impermanence. When we're stripped down by suffering, our face becomes visibly real. You can sometimes see this in Sashen, the end of Sashen, when faces are stripped down. You can sometimes see this in the baldness of monastics. 
an honest face, no frame that tries to pretty it up and make it handsome and appealing and measurable and photos and fantasies. It's just reality. There's something about turning with all of our willing awareness to ourselves in the deepest possible way when we're stripped down, which brings real wisdom. Not as smarts, but with the rawness of our humanness. That simple. With the humility of our pain. And we may find ourselves on our knees physically and mentally. Sometimes in my life it's been the old grandmas who've had that wisdom, who seen it all, lost it all. Being in this place turns us over. Turns us over like a compost pile is turned over. Aspects of ourself we could not, would not have access to come into light in the uprooting of ourself. If we take this up, we deepen. We deepen. We get realer, real, down to our base, amidst all of our anxiety and fear and pain. And yet, if we stay with it, our relationship to our own suffering becomes relationship to the suffering of others. And, of course, at the same time, this can easily be turned into more suffering if we only have our self-referential focus and our desperation to be free of pain. That's our demand. I don't want this. I'm not going to take it. How can I be free of it? And we've seen that, too, in our grandmas and grandpas and in ourselves, perhaps. And so we, as we always do, face choices when we're suffering. And to face those choices, we have to, without disregarding our pain, our suffering, also be able to see past it, to be able to acknowledge our choices, that there are choices here. And those choices are not about fixing pain. I mean, we can fix pain. We can blame. We can self-blame. I think we do a lot of that. We can shame ourselves. That's a biggie. We can explain the suffering. We can rationalize it with concentrated uh, thought. We can figure it out. We can come up with reasons why this is so. Have you done that? I have. I did not find any grace in that process. Do you? Where does grace come from? Because when it does come, there's a measure of freedom. There's still the suffering, but there's a measure of freedom within it, movement within it. Where does that come from? I've I've mentioned this before, where a Protestant minister, I know a serious person, said to me, I don't know how it works, speaking of prayer, but somehow it does work. Are we praying to in those times? Ourself? But what is this self? Who's included? What is left out of that? Who's included? 
wherever I look, I see inclusion. My relationship with other people, family, friends, as well as the things and places in my life where I may not easily notice the grace that's being offered. The woman who took my package at the post office, she looked at me. The teenager who gave me directions when I was lost last week. The driver who gave me an opening to get in a lane. And this grace gives my life meaning in these times, which I think we desperately need, we desperately want. We want to be touched. Touched physically, touched by relationship. It's an interesting thing, and there's a lot of reasons, respectful reasons from my perspective for this. But we don't touch that much in Zen practice, physically touch. And, you know, sure, it could be misunderstood and it could be loaded with many other things. I, I get that, and we've all got that. But there's also something about physical touch which nothing else is that, can be that. And there's another side as well. If I'm going to be there for friends and family and the many strangers I come in contact with, can I be aware not only for the gifts they provide me, but also conscious about the gifts I offer others and the ways in which I don't allow those gifts, don't provide for others, the ways I communicate, no, don't come near me. There seem to be endless others. But when we look closely, what makes those endless others others? What makes them apart from me? When we look closely at that, what do we actually find? It's an interesting question. When we're relieved from self-focus, from the things and people we complain about, from our pre-prepared highways of judgment, you know, we all got that down, right? Are there people in your life who look and just clicks in? That person, they, da 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 Every interaction I have with that person, I walk away feeling so diminished, so harmed. In fact, the person doesn't even have to appear in my life. I could just tune to that channel and, you know, adjust the rabbit ears. Remember those? You know, till it comes in clearly and spend the next 15 minutes working with that. What interesting karma comes out of that? But when we're relieved from our self-focus, when we allow our pre-prepared avenues of judgment to just be, just be. And my own experience in those, those areas of judgment, as I say, in every lie, there's a grain of the truth. You know, there's something there. Okay, there's something there. How much is mine? How much is theirs? You know, the deepest respect I can have for somebody, particularly somebody who either I don't like or is not giving me permission to interact with them, which happens all the time in the sendo, you know, where someone's in a training position and a particular person comes over who's responsible for instructing them, and they're not given permission. That second person. I don't want to hear a correction. And that can be communicated in a lot of different ways. But when we 
relieve ourselves from this perspective. We transform our suffering into an open doorway that has immense possibilities to not suffer. And that possibility is of seeing whoever and whatever comes to us as a way to touch and be touched. To live in a relationship that's based on no relationship whatsoever. Because in a true relationship, there's no gap. There's no space. When the woman in the post office hands me the package and she looks at me, there's no space there. That's not coming from me. I mean, we're there together. There's no space there. How did that happen? She's a clerk in a post office. This is alive and present. When there's the gap in awareness between this breath and zazen and the next, you know, that pause where you kind of, you're in the breath, you're aware of the breath, and there's a space. What's in that space? Asleep? Nothing? And I don't mean emptiness here. I mean, duh. You know, what I call the fake thought, the shadow thought, that edging to get in there. But, you know, I'm... Um, kind of kicking it out, but it's coming back on the other side, or, you know. What's in that gap? Is there a gap? And what's the relationship between that gap, between the breaths, and the gap that's here, or out there? And yet, to live without a gap, what will you encounter? You will encounter sickness, sickness, old age, and death you will encounter physical and mental diminishment with time, the sorrow of being and the sorrows of not being, and you will encounter joy and happiness and a life that holds it all. I'm speaking in general terms, but it's in the specifics of this that the life holds it all. In those moments, you know, that's all we got is those moments. And suppose I had gone into the post office and the person you know, threw the package at me, or took the package, I don't even remember what the actual transaction was because I was so caught by the moment. And, you know, probably most transactions on the part of people are like that. But what's, where am I? Where am I in my life? Their response is not my problem. It affects me. But how do I honor their response? How do I actually honor that person who is a human being worth honoring? Maybe by not judging them. Maybe by not, and you can end the sentence there, as in, don't do evil, do good. The theme of the Sangha, one of the themes of the Sangha. Don't do evil. Just do good. So how do we live in the midst of suffering? To be clear, and I really want to be clear on this, immense suffering doesn't need mind adjustments or a better way of seeing immense suffering as some other form of more acceptable suffering. You can do that, and a lot of effort and attention is is done to that. 
in and of itself, there's no nothing wrong with that. But there's more to this than just manipulating our suffering. So how do we do that? Just as it is. Just as it is. Nothing added. Nothing taken away. Perhaps with overwhelming pain, with overwhelming grief, with the numbness and the enormity of that that can sometimes happen in our life, we need to allow a space. We need to allow whatever we need to allow. But we should also respect that in any given moment, whether we're allowing this space or not allowing this space, within grief, we change. It's not a fixed thing. It's changing. And there are all kinds of grief. And I'm speaking here in more dramatic terms. There's much more subtle forms of grief, often unacknowledged in our life, often never given permission to be conscious and yet fully present, radiating from us, sending out messages, emails all the time to the people around us. I guess we're sending out texts now. Probably even past that. I'm out of the loop. I mean, we understand, I think we all understand that no one escapes this life without encountering grief, without encountering suffering. And yet in this, a door can open. He says, when you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that has given you joy. How can that possibly be? And when you are sorrowful, look again into your heart and you will see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. We may begin to see for ourselves that suffering and joy are two sides of our being. You cannot get one without the other. You cannot get one without the other. The deeper the sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. When you sit alone, When one sits alone with you at your board, at your desk, remember that the other is asleep on your bed. This is the wholeness of the duality we tend to fall into. It's an apparent duality. And there's a fundamental perspective here, which is crucial to living our bodhisattva vows. These vows that we take are personal. They're really personal. They're not some vows that we're taking in church or synagogue or the Zen temple because that's the form. They're personal. They're about you and your relationship with suffering and joy and your relationship with other people's suffering and joy. They place our practice as the willingness to face our own being, to awaken so that we may offer our life and practice to help all beings, no one excluded, including yourself. But we have to start where we are. And we have to look carefully how we affect all beings with our work, with our action, with our thoughts, with the subtle communications that we offer when someone says something to us or we say something to someone or we listen or don't listen. If we're not willing to see 
and accept how we've been the source of others and our own suffering. If we're not willing to do that, then we cannot truly know ourselves. We cannot truly know the honor by which we live. I'm using honor in a very particular way here. The honor by which we live, which we can live, which we live in the most fundamental sense, whether it is ever acknowledged by us, by our actions, by our understanding of who we are in this world and relationship. Knowing that honor by which we and all beings live, we begin to see for ourselves that suffering is self-relational. We're related to all the suffering in the world. We are related to all the suffering in the world. The three or four or five churches that were blown up yesterday or last night, Christian churches blown up in Sri Lanka, I think, the 140, 50 people who died, it's ours. The churches that were burned down in the South over the past few weeks is ours. Pain and grief, loss, sickness, death is not just inevitable. It's life itself. This is life. It's been this way. I don't think it's going to change in any time soon. To experience this is not suffering. It's just pain, grief, loss, sickness, death. Just. There's a wholeness, a profound stillness in this just. Just. Which is not distance or protection or separation. It's a wholeness. And usually we do add our sly distance between ourselves and our life and ourselves and what we perceive as other beings suffering. If it's painful, I don't accept it. I mutter to myself silently. You all know when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Do you happen to know who Mother Mary is in this context? It's his actual mother. It's Paul's actual mother who died when he was a young teenager. I relate to that personally because my mother died when I was even younger. And when I find myself in times of trouble, my mother comes to me. In fact, she's here now. She's actually sitting on the altar over my right shoulder. And if you think this is metaphor or some projection, it's not. She's actually closer than that. So as I've gone along, I begin to see, to see that I do pray. Oh, of course, not, oh, Lordy, will you buy me a Mercedes-Benz, etc. But, <laughs> but whatever you call it, who are we appealing to? Who are we crying out for? An invocation is set forth. Something is called forth. Who is that? We chanted it this morning. 
Nomo Samanda Motanano Horachi Kodoshasonananto Chito and Gai 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 Ki Gai Ki Shira Shira Harashira Harashira Chisasa Chisasa Chisuri Chisuri Sawaja Sawaja Senchi Gai Shiri Aksomoko. You know that chant where I walk very, very, very slowly up and very, very slowly back, and the thoughts occur to you. Boy, I hate this chant. It's taken so long. <laughs> that one. <laughs> that chant is calling forth. It's invoking. It's a chant that's addressing the cries of the world. Here's a translation. I don't know how accurate this is. Veneration to all Buddhas. The incomparable Buddha power that banishes suffering. Om. The light of re- the Buddha of reality, wisdom, nirvana. And I might add that the officiant is invoking those Buddhas. That's what they're doing during that. They're invoking the Buddhas, specific Buddhas, that address suffering. Not just random Buddhas. Not just some Buddha walking down State Street, although we wouldn't exclude that. Om, the Buddha of reality, wisdom, nirvana. Light, light, great light, great light. With no categories. This mysterious power saves all beings. Suffering goes. Happiness comes. Well, if this isn't a prayer, I don't know what is. So let's call it an invocation so we don't have to deal with the Buddhist idea, the Christian idea that we're praying to something else. We're not praying to something else. Whenever this devoted invocation is sent forth, it is perceived and subtly answered. Familiar? Veneration to all Buddhas. We're calling to all Buddhas. All of them. Every single one of them. They're here. They're sitting in your seats. They're beating your heart. We chant all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas through space and time. All of them. So we offer our veneration. We offer our merit, our energy of our life in doing this chant to all beings through all space and time. We offer our service to all beings, inanimate and inanimate. The absolute light, luminous throughout the whole universe. Unfathomable excellence pervading everywhere. Whenever this devoted invocation is sent forth, it is perceived and subtly answered. Who is perceiving this? Who is answering this? We can be stripped down at the bottom of our despair. We can let go of anything that is not that. It's just our desperation, just our pain. So we call for, perhaps pray for, perhaps invoke the powerful bodhisattva beings that can and do help us. There are infinite beings in this vast universe. Infinite beings. This universe is infinite. More than we can possibly know, even in a thousand or million lifetimes. And yet within us, within us, is a place that is not suffering, cannot be suffering. It's a place that I cannot know with my direct conscious mind, but it is there. In this moment, who is saving us from our suffering? Is it me? Is it you? Is it a bodhisattva? How many beings are within us? How many beings are in this place of our life 
how many beings are you not only connected to, constructed of, but are? It has always been like this. It will always be like this. When you bow with the whole body and mind, there appears as you, a divine being with supernatural powers. Did you know that? You know, when you go, did you know there appears as you a divine being with supernatural powers? This being is the whole universe. It is you yourself bowing. How could not all beings come to the age, come to the aid of such a being? How could they not? They are this being. They are you and you are them. What makes this being you are supernatural? Nothing is lacking. Nothing is missing. Whole, complete, just as you are. Now I ask you, is this something truly special? Divine? Supernatural? Or completely ordinary? It's just you. Your original face. Appearing in a bow, prostration, a cry for help, a waterfall of tears, a response to a cry for help, a complete bow. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Where do you think Mother Mary is? Where else could she be but in your own seat? Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.